pandemic, social unrest, the state house, and the White House. You are listening to the John DePietro Show. Afternoon, everyone. Right now, the time is 106. 106 on this Wednesday. It's February 10th. Good afternoon. It's Sean DePietro on AM 1380 or 99.9 FM. This portion of the program brought to you by Make Sure You Stop It and See Marie. It's My Health, 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland, right across from Davenport Restaurant. They are open on this sunny Wednesday. Stop in vitamins, herbal remedies, local products, and more. It's my health because it's your health. Health, 1099 Menden Road in Cumberland. You've driven by that old white church stop in. Folks, let's rejoin. Now, this is uh, significant, and it is the impeachment trial of President Trump with the Democrat impeachment managers making the case. Let's pick it up. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. Frankly, we did win. Rather than calmly saying, let's count the votes. If there's legal issues, we'll go to court and we'll resolve them. Instead, he told his supporters that he actually won the election and the whole thing was a fraud. He said that on November 4th, and he has never recounted that statement since. Despite President Trump's pressure at the time, election officials around the country continued to carry out their duties. And as votes were counted and his loss became more certain, he riled up his base further. Take a look at these tweets. On November 5th, he tweeted, in all capital letters, as if shouting commands, quote, stop the count, stop the fraud. Senators, this is dangerous. I also want you to remember these tweets for another reason. Because that's what it looks like when Donald Trump wants people to stop doing something. And bear in mind, this is not the president saying to his supporters that somebody stole your cup of coffee. This is the commander in chief telling his supporters, your election is being stolen and you must stop the counting of American votes. And it worked. His words became their actions. His commands led to their actions. Take a look at this. The same day as those tweets, the same day as those tweets, around 100 Trump supporters showed up in front of the Maricopa County Election Center in Phoenix, some of them carrying rifles, literally trying to intimidate officials to stop the count, just as President Trump had commanded. Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs said that protesters were, quote, causing delay and disruption and preventing those employees from doing their job. Let's call this what it was. We're facing a global pandemic. Workers were risking their health to ensure the integrity of our elections. And President Trump's supporters were encircling them, trying to prevent, prevent them from doing their own jobs. This was dangerous. It was scary, and it was a blatant act of political intimidation. In Philadelphia, that same day, police investigated an alleged plot to attack the city's Pennsylvania Convention Center, where votes were being counted. Police took at least one man into custody who was carrying a weapon. And this happened all over, in Atlanta, in Detroit, and in Milwaukee. His supporters used armed force to try to disrupt lawful counting of votes votes because they bought into Trump's big lie that the election was stolen from them. President Trump's months of inflaming and inciting his supporters had worked. They believed it was their duty to quite literally fight to stop the count. So they showed up at election centers across the country to do just that. This is a fraud. 
on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. into his big lies. President Trump told his supporters over and over again, nearly every day, in dozens of tweets, speeches, and rallies, that their most precious right in our democracy, their voice, their vote, was being stripped away, and they had to fight to stop that. And they believed him. And so they fought. And you may say, well, he didn't know that they'd take up arms. But when he did know, when it was all over the news, President Trump didn't stop. As Mr. Swalwell will show, after Donald Trump lost, he became even more desperate and incited his base even further. He urged them again and again with increasingly forceful language to fight to stop the steal. And even as the certification got closer, and he grew even more desperate, he gave them specific instructions on how, where, and when to fight to stop the steal. He told them to show up on January 6th and march to the U.S. Capitol to stop the certification of the election results. And he told them to come here and fight like hell. You will see clearly that this violent mob that showed up here on January 6th didn't come out of thin air. President Donald John Trump incited this violence. And that's the truth. Folks, again, good afternoon. It's John DePietro. You're listing continuing coverage. This is the Senate trial of President Trump. That was uh, uh, one of the House impeachment managers, Castro. So right now it's 1.14 in the afternoon. We're going to stay with this a little bit longer. They start at 12 noon. I have a feeling they're going to be going to a break in a little while. But we'll stay a little bit more to hear exactly what the their uh, what their case is. And they're making the case against the president. Now, again, this is uh, going on today. And then later in the week, the president's people will have a chance. My name is Eric Swalwell, and I represent California's 15th Congressional District. Here's uh, Representative Swalwell. Manager Castro just told you about Donald Trump's lies and acts before the election. But, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, that wasn't the end of his efforts. That wasn't the beginning of the end. But perhaps it was the end of the beginning. Here's what I mean. You saw President Trump prime for months his supporters to believe that if the election was lost, it only could have been so because it was rigged. But that took time. Just like to build a fire, it doesn't just start with the flames. Donald Trump, for months and months, assembled the tinder, the kindling, threw on logs for fuel to have his supporters believe that the only way their victory would be lost was if it was stolen. So that way, President Trump was ready, if he lost the election, to light the match. And on November 7, after all the votes were counted, President Trump did lose by 7 million votes. 
But for Donald Trump, all was not lost. He had a backup plan. Instead of accepting the results or pursuing legitimate claims, he told his base more lies. He doused the flames with kerosene. And this wasn't just some random guy at the neighborhood bar blowing off steam. This was our commander in chief. Day after day, he told his supporters false outlandish lies that the victory, that the election outcome was taken and it was rigged. And he had absolutely no support for his claims. But that wasn't the point. He wanted to make his base angrier and angrier. And to make them angry, he was willing to say anything. On November 15, he states, I concede nothing. We have a long way to go. Rigged election. Doesn't say why the election is rigged. November 17, in a Twitter statement, dead people voted. That's it. No evidence. Just dead people voted. November 28, Twitter statement. We have found many illegal votes. Stay tuned. This just wasn't true. He never found illegal votes. He didn't even try to pretend that he had evidence for that. And stay tuned. Well, that was all about inciting his base, not about bringing legitimate claims. It was about dramatizing the election to anger his supporters. December 5, you see here, he goes after the governors of Arizona and Georgia, governors from his own party, claiming that they weren't with him. You see, senators, he is casting this in combat terms, that either you are with him, making sure that he won the election, or you're fighting against him. These are just a few of the hundreds of Twitter statements that President Trump sent. And it wasn't just Twitter statements. As you'll see, he was dialing into meetings, holding rallies, appearing on television, continuing to spread the big lie that his election victory was stolen. People that were dead were signing up for ballots. Not only were they coming in and putting in a ballot, but dead people were requesting ballots. And they were dead for years. And they were requesting ballots. Dead people voting all over the place? The alleged Biden margin of victory in several states is entirely accounted for by extraordinarily large midnight vote dumps. You saw them with going up to the sky. Massive midnight vote dumps. Dead people voting all over the place. He said there were votes going up to the sky. This was never about pursuing legitimate claims. He was saying anything he could to trigger and anger his base so that they would fight like hell to overturn a legitimate election. And it worked. Just as Manager Castro showed you, President Trump's supporters were taking up arms to stop the count. His message to fight like steel, fight like hell, was having real consequences. In Michigan, you'll recall that President Trump was attacking that state and its officials. He continued these attacks even after Michigan certified its votes. Take a look at Michigan. Take a look at what they did with respect to counties. And then you get to Detroit, and it's like more votes than people? Dead people voting all over the place? You know, I won almost every county in Michigan, almost every district. We should have won that state very easily. We have a similar type of governor, I think, but I'll let you know that in about a week. He's literally telling them that there were more votes in Detroit than people. About 260,000 people voted in Detroit. There are roughly 500,000 registered voters in Detroit. There are approximately 670,000 people living in the city. So again, not true. 
but he needed to make these outlandish claims to truly make his supporters believe that their victory was stolen from them. And it was working. A few days after these clips, on December 5, his supporters surrounded the Michigan Secretary of State's home. Secretary of the State House and at night, the Secretary's family's inside. Protesters have surrounded her home and they're chanting that she's a felon. And as we saw, when armed protesters showed up to follow President Trump's direction to stop the steal, this was not the first time that President Trump's supporters used threats and intimidation. President Trump cannot say, I didn't know what I was inciting. From what Manager Castro showed and what I just showed, there was plenty of evidence that his words had consequences. And if he wanted to stop it, he could stop it. You saw Mr. Castro read statement after statement from our Commander-in-Chief saying stop the count, stop the steal. President Trump was never shy about using his platforms to try and stop something. He could have very easily told his supporters, stop threatening officials, stop going to their homes, stop it with the threats. But each time, he didn't. Instead, in the face of escalating violence, he incited them further. The next phase in the certification of results was the certification on December 14 of the Electoral College votes. The night before, President Trump personally issued 14 Twitter statements with more false claims about the election being stolen and directing his supporters to make sure that, quote, they cannot be certified. He states here, the rhinos, the rhinos that run the state voting apparatus have caused us the problem of allowing the Democrats to so blatantly cheat in their attempt to steal the election which we won overwhelmingly. We will never give up. In the face of threats to elected officials, this is his message. And he calls them rhinos, Republicans in name only, and tells them to never give up. President Trump, to him, it was his supporters against anyone who would not overturn the election results so that President Trump could win. But on December 14, despite all of President Trump's efforts to stop, the electors cast their votes according to the will of the American people, and Joe Biden was certified as having won 306 electoral college votes. The day after this occurred, Leader McConnell recognized this, stating, many of us hoped that the presidential election would yield a different result. But our system of government has processes to determine who will be sworn in on January 20. The Electoral College has spoken. As Manager Castro said, no one here, no one among us wants to lose an election. Sometimes there's a reason to dispute an election. Sometimes the count is close. Sometimes we ask for a recount or we go to court. That's entirely appropriate. But what President Trump did was different. What President Trump did was the polar opposite of what any of us would do if we lost an election. Because once the outcome is clear and a judge rules, we concede, we recognize the will of the American people because we let the people decide. And that's what all of the courts, the Justice Department, and the 50 states that had counted the votes they said it was time for a peaceful transition of power because that's what our Constitution and rule of law demands. Except President Trump. He directed all of the rage that he had incited to January 6th.
That was his last chance to stop the peaceful transition of power. And that brings us to the attack. Manager Castro told you the power of the lie, especially when the lie comes from the most powerful person in the world, the Commander-in-Chief. It also helps if you spend millions of dollars to amplify that lie. You'll see here, in mid-December, President Trump announced the release of ads, including ones entitled, The Evidence is Overwhelming, Fraud, Stop the Steal. He spent $50 million from his legal defense fund on these ads to stop the steal and amplify his message. They were released nationally, played in video ads, online advertising, and targeted text messages. They used the same words and phrases that President Trump had been spreading for months, that the election was full of fraud, to stop the steal. But now they had a specific purpose. How do we know that purpose? These ads were designed to run all the way up to January 5. And then they stopped. This was purposeful and deliberate planning to target his base to rally around that day. And it wasn't just his ads. He continued to use his own platform. He told his supporters who truly believed their victory had been stolen and who were ready to fight when, where, and how to stop what he believed was a steal. Donald Trump would issue a deliberate call to action. And just like in his ads, that was action, that action centered around January 6th. On December 19, at 1.42 in the morning, our commander-in-chief tweeted, Big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. Will be wild. We know why he picked this day. It wasn't random. It was his last chance to stop a peaceful transition of power. And he gave his supporters plenty of time to plan. This was the save the date sent out 18 days before the event on January 6th. And it wasn't a casual one-off reference or a single invitation. For the next 18 days, Donald Trump would make sure to remind them over and over and over to show up on January 6th. And he would tell them exactly what he wanted Folks, them to do. Folks, good afternoon. At 129, John DePietro. We're going to take a quick break coming up in 30 seconds. Now, they are going to be taking a break, so we'll bring you up to speed on some of the other news of the day. And again, you're listening. This is impeachment coverage, AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. Now, again, they are going to be uh, going into a break, and uh, so stay tuned. Uh, a lot more ahead. It's the John DePietro Show on AM 1380 and 99.9 FM. Let's take a quick break and set it back to the studio with our friend Jeff. If you've been thinking about updating your website or if you have questions about how to get the most out of social media for your business, you could receive a free consultation from a local digital marketing professional and she's been doing this work for 25 years. Contact Karen Etchells at Innovast Digital Marketing. She will help you better position your brand on the web to engage visitors and get results. She's local and responsive. Give Karen a call for a free consultation at 401-321-2799. That's 401-321-2799. Or find Karen on the web at www.innovast.com. The pandemic, social unrest, the state house, and the White House. You are listening to the John DePietro Show. It's 
It's John DePietro on AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, dipietro.com. There's snow, there's ice out there. If you're ever in an accident, pick up the phone and call West Fountain Auto Body, 272-3340. The original, the best. Did someone damage your vehicle? Maybe someone skidded on some ice? Call West Fountain Auto Body, 272 272- 3340. Now remember, if you're ever in an accident or someone you work with or a family member or a friend, call four words, West Fountain Auto Body, 272-3340. Located 400 West Fountain Street in Providence, it's West Fountain Auto Body. Well, they're going to continue with this Senate impeachment trial. And the reason why I think if they want to waste time, they're going to waste time. But let's just be very clear. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going anywhere. They took a vote yesterday. They need 17 Republican senators to float, to, to uh, flip. 17 Republican senators to flip. And it's not going to happen. Yes, I think it's a waste. I, I, I don't agree with that. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. And it's because they're not going to get this anyway. They are not going to convict this president. You need 17 Republican senators to flip on this and they're not going to flip. So if they want to drag this out, meaning the Democrats, and I know they're having that big day with Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline and others, if they want to use up all this week and they feel that they can wrap it up, if I were the Republicans, keep it going then. Now, next week is the break and the schedule right now, you know, they're actually saying that they may try to get a vote Either uh, they could, you know, go into the weekend, Saturday, even into Sunday. Who knows? Maybe it even goes into to Monday. But if that's how they want to use up the time and dominate all the news coverage and keep playing, you know, the video over and over, as I've said in the past, I think it was a protest that that got out of control. There were protests all the time. Every day, or used to be, in Washington and outside the Capitol. And the way that it is now being depicted, Morning Joe now is calling everyone that was there a cop killer. That is atrocious. That is completely wrong. They're trying to depict everyone that was there as white supremacists. This is being done to damage the Republican Party, really damage President Trump. But they're trying to embarrass you if you're a Trump supporter. They want all Trump supporters to, to start to say, no, I, I wasn't a Trump supporter and I would never support him. And and it's going to be nonstop. Now, we don't know what happened within the crowd. And, and you can see some of the footage, obviously, you know, you don't know. People were fired up. People felt, you know, how come I don't have a right to be in front of the Capitol or on the steps of the Capitol? And the majority of the people never entered that building. You know, all summer long and into the, uh, the fall, we always heard about the peaceful protesters and most of the crowd was peaceful. That can go both ways. Why can't that go both ways? If you want to play that game, you know, most of the people that were there were peaceful protesters. Yes, that is true. Some people wanted to get inside. And they wanted to be in the gallery and they wanted to confront people. But you can't have a situation where everyone keeps saying this could have happened and this almost happened. And imagine if they had gotten their hands on Nancy Pelosi. And imagine if they had gotten their hands on Mike Pence. And and Cicilline saying, imagine if they could have. You know, that just doesn't go anywhere. The fact is that none of that happened. Uh, the fact is that there was there was no uh, there was no legislature. There's no congressperson, no senator. There was no one like that that was uh, apprehended, that was beaten. Who knows? You know, look at some of the crowd. Um, a, a lot of the crowd, they, they make a lot of the guy with the horns. You see the people as they go into the Senate. There's that. I noticed they didn't show the video inside the Senate where they're talking to one of the Capitol Police saying, listen, you guys really need to leave. You shouldn't be in here. And what they do, they left. So it's very one-sided. I recognize that the media is going against it. And listen, there were two, there were two deaths, and they're, they're both terrible. They are unfortunate. I, I don't know. We don't, still don't know what exactly what happened with that Capitol Police officer who returned to his office later in the day and collapsed. And um, we haven't heard exactly what happened. We know that Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed. She was an unarmed uh, Air Force veteran who was shot and killed inside the Capitol. As far as some of the other people, they had uh, health emergencies, but it was outside on the sidewalk. One of them, it even actually happened over at the Trump speech. So, you know, if they want to try to gin this up and get everyone excited, I think the fact that the Trump legal team that came in and they certainly brought the air out of the ball and slowed it down, you're not going to 
out-gin them, you know, or out-excite them with your own video. So they took a different tact. But it's not going to go anywhere. It shouldn't go anywhere. It, it's, it's unfortunate what was happening. Um, but if they feel that they want to take up this time doing it, it just means that's, that's just more things that President Biden is not getting done. And it's being done to damage you and the president and the Republican Party. This business of all Trump supporters and white supremacists and cop killers, it's really atrocious. All right, a lot more ahead right here on the John DePietro Show. The heating season is here. Folks, you need to call JKL Engineering today. JKL 401-351-7600. Let JKL Engineering design and install a natural gas high-efficiency carrier Infinity System, the energy efficient, quiet, more affordable than you think. If you think no gas, hey, guess what? No problem. Let JKL Engineering design and install a high efficiency heat pump system, including ductless splits. Heats in the winter, cools in the summer. These units are so efficient, reduce your oil bill by as much as 90%. They have the highest rebates in the market. And they also do new installation and replacement of high efficiency gas boilers. JKL is carry factory authorized dealer. Licensed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. You know, for over 50 years, JKL's reputation second to none, especially for technical expertise, customer satisfaction. JKL is an approved national grid BPI installer. JKL is also a Navian certified factory dealer called JKL, sister replacement oil to gas for a heat pump. Remember, estimates are free. Financing is available. They're licensed in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Call JKL Engineering right now, residential or commercial, at 401-351-7600. JKL, they'll do it right the first time. Now call them. You don't want to get stuck with an inefficient heating system. What if it starts to get really cold? Call JKL right now. Free quote, free estimate. Estimates are free. Financing is available. 401-351-7600. Rhode Island, Massachusetts. It's JKL Engineering. 401-351-7600. If you've been thinking about updating your website or if you have questions about how to get the most out of social media for your business, you could receive a free consultation from a local digital marketing professional. And she's been doing this work for 25 years. Contact Karen Etchells at InnoVest Digital Marketing. She will help you better position your brand on the web to engage visitors and get results. She's local and responsive. Give Karen a call for a free consultation at 401-321-2799. That's 401-321-2799. Or find Karen on the web at www.innovast.com. What's the point of having an appliance if it doesn't work properly or maybe you have problems with it? I'll tell you what you should do. As I like to say, if your appliance is dying, just call Ryan. Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. Easy to remember, Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. I've used Ryan on several occasions, whether it's for your washing machine or maybe your dryer or the refrigerator, or your stove, or oven, or microwave, any appliance. If your appliance is dying, just call Ryan, 401-710-7096. I was having a problem with our our clothes dryer. What would happen? It wouldn't turn on. No way they were going to dry the clothes. I called Ryan's Appliance Repair. He fixed that in about five minutes, and the oven wouldn't heat up. I called Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401-710-7096. He fixed the, he fixed the, the oven in about five minutes. Folks, call them. All work is guaranteed for 90 days. Parts and labor. Senior citizens discounts are available, and Saturday appointments are available. Come on. Call Ryan's Appliance Repair, 401 710 96. You are listening to the John DePietro Show weekdays. We start at 11. We go until 2. It's AM 1380, 99.9 FM. You can always listen online at the website, DePietro.com. Folks, joining me right now, he covers Rhode Island for the uh, ever-expanding Boston Globe staff covering Rhode Island, as a matter of fact. But it's Dan McGowan. And Dan, yesterday, Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline that is uh, that there's no bigger stage than the stage that he was on yesterday. Yeah, I mean, think about it. There will be, uh, you know, 100 years from now, the history books will show that the, you know, congressman from Rhode Island was uh, the 
helping one of the people, you know, making the case for uh, the conviction of a president, right? Uh, It's funny because, you know, we've had this two times in 13 months, but, you know, back a year ago when you and I were talking or 13 months ago when we were talking, we had to go back in history, you know, a long time for, for other aside from, of course, uh, uh, you know, the, the Clinton, but we had to go back even further than that. And, and there was lots of, you know, what happened? What were the Rhode Island members of Congress doing? And in this case, this, you know, again, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, we're going to be talking to we won't be, but folks will be talking about how Rhode Island had a major role. And I, I don't know about you, John. I mean, I, I expected uh, David Cicilline to do to kind of perform exactly the way he performed. He he knows that moment very well. He he was a defense attorney before he got into politics, so he knew what he was doing. Um, and you know, again, I don't think it matters because I don't think they're going to get the 17 votes that they need on the Republican side to convict the president or the former president, but. Uh, he did what he needed to do, and I think once again, David Cicilline continues to kind of rise to the occasion as a bit of an uh, in Democratic politics. You know, Jim McGowan, I don't um, agree, obviously, with his politics. However, he is someone, Congressman David Cicilline, you can make the argument that that is someone who's truly, when we talk about hear them talk about people, you know, I think one time Patrick Lynn said he was addicted to public service, but Yesterday, to me, was an example that should he choose to, he could be making a fortune as as an attorney in Absolutely. private practice, but but chooses to do that. And he, as a matter of fact, yesterday, he mentioned that you know he his former career he was a a, a defense attorney. Yeah, I mean, look, he's a guy who <coughs> who enjoys. I think uh, I think he enjoyed the courtroom. By the way, it's the same reason. There's been a long-running argument about David Cicilline about, you know, was he a good mayor? Was he a bad mayor? You know, is he a good legislator? Is, he, is it better to be a legislator? And in the case of him, uh, you know, being a legislator, being able to kind of make your arguments. He loves going on TV. He loves being able to kind of play the political game. And then he loves these moments. And all of these things happen when you're a legislator. They don't happen as much when you're the mayor, right? When you're charged with having to balance a budget yourself and when you're you know when you're having to do the things that all mayors have to do uh by the way same way for i think any executive the governor faces this in many ways in rhode island too but uh he's almost made for kind of this kind of moment and you're right i mean the guy clearly if he if he did want to uh uh, get out of politics, I think he'd be probably one of the highest i think he would be the highest priced lawyer in Rhode Island. Yeah, if he wanted to be in D.C., he yeah. could be in D.C. or, or wherever. So, But that was also, you know, you have the story on it. And just the backdrop, number one, unbelievably raises his profile. Number two, the ability to raise money. Yep. And number three, little stuff, you know, if uh, he's strolling into a D.C. restaurant at whatever time, it's a pretty good way to get a quick table or be invited for a Saturday night dinner party at, you know, someone from the Washington Post or someone that's having it like that. It's... um. In the world that he's in, he is, I, I think, more than, than anyone else. Maybe Sheldon Whitehouse is in that world a little bit, but he, he really has embraced D.C. And he's, you know, I've spoken to people that there. It's a force. When he comes into the room in Washington, D.C., people know who he is. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. I, I don't even think it's close. I think nobody in our congressional delegation, and maybe no one in our congressional delegation in a really long time, has been sort of a creature of D.C., the yeah. way that David Cicilline is, he, by the way, the guy does love to be up here because he loves the praise that he gets. And he, you know, again, in normal times, try to go to an event with, you know, to see him on the south side of Providence. It's like a parade mm. for the guy. Um, right. Right. So, he, you know, he has plenty of support up here. He loves that. But he, he, he you know, it, it's even more meaningful. None of these guys would say this, you know, publicly. But when you start to get noticed, right, when you start to. Uh, you know, when you don't have to necessarily always wear the pin on your, uh, you know, right on your lapel to get noticed, that really does matter. And for people out there listening, it's probably a little bit of, oh, my God, these guys are egomaniacs. Well, there is some truth to that. And uh, and these are the kind of moments where you become a star. And you mentioned it. And let's not 
uh, forget about it. The ability to raise money off of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, here's a guy who is still facing the scenario where he's going to have to run statewide in two years if we lose a congressional seat. It doesn't hurt to be able to, you know, sock away a million or two million bucks here where and put everybody else in a spot that that, you know, potentially wants to take their one chance against, you know, against the congressman. Well, good luck if, if he's sitting on four or five million bucks by, you know, by sometime in 2022. Yeah, he is. Um, he is very uh, effective out on the campaign trail, as you said. People line up. I just go back to 2012. Uh, Brendan Doherty, who challenged him, the Republican 2012. Brendan Doherty was at the Marriott waiting for results. David Cicilline was standing outside the Juanita Sanchez complex uh, as his staff was handing out pizza. He was out there. It doesn't take anything to chance. I think he was out there until like 930 at night. But this this is someone he he is very good what he does. I think that's that's um, an interesting observation that you notice. I, I agree with you. I think he's he's more comfortable and embraces being the legislator as opposed to being the CEO, chief executive as a mayor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and by the way, if you're the there's something if you talk to any of these guys and I've read lots from, you know, from some of the big city mayors, guys like former Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel, things like that. They all say being the mayor is the best job you could ever do. And the reason is always the same. Mayor Lors says this. Mayor Congressman Cicilline now says this. It's that, well, you can see the change every single day, right? right. You can you can sure. literally fill a pothole that makes someone's life easier or whatever. The problem is, is that in between all of those lovely things that you get to do for people is the real hard work of balancing budgets, of making tough decisions, of fighting with the unions. And all of that part, those are the parts they don't talk about. When you're a legislator, you never have to deal with any of that stuff. That's it's a right. much better yeah. job. Yeah, it, it is a better job. Folks, so speaking with Dan McGowan of the Boston Globe, and uh, there's a story in, in the Boston Globe today, who has applied to be the next lieutenant governor of Rhode Island. You know, Dan, this is one of those things that, um, uh, and, and your colleague Ed Fitzpatrick has a, has a good story on it, but I, I think the way this whole thing evolved, and first they weren't sure about the process, then you have a website, then people are, you know, applying to it, and then at first they weren't going to release who applied, then they did uh, 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 you know, release the list. Uh, take me through a little bit. What do you think this shows as far as uh, some of the names that I think you're you're still on the money on who seems to be the front runner here? But take us through the list a little. Yeah, bit. I mean, I think the first of all, the only two people, who, the suckers who didn't apply, are you and I <laughs> at this point. Uh, yeah. You know, when you're talking, you know, more than sixty applications uh, from all over the place. You know, and on one hand, John, I look at this and I say, I, I do think to some degree, look. They, they know where they generally where they want to go. They want a person of color. They want a person they're going to trust. They want someone who's going to help them in 2022. That's why they've been zeroing in, as we've been reporting for weeks, on two people. The former mayor of Central Falls, James Siosa, and the city council yep. president of Providence, Sabino Matos. The- seem to be the front runners. I'm not saying that there's no one else that's getting a look, uh, but those are the two front runners. You look at all these, you look at some of these applications, and some of us, we roll our eyes. You look at people who just who seemingly all run or apply for everything. Um, but then there's a handful of people who are never going to get selected for this job. But they might get that call from the, from the governor in a week or two if he, if he gets sworn in soon. And he says, hey, I'd really love you to help me on X, on Y, whatever it is. Uh, that's going to, you know, even when it's uh, local politics, I think, you know, when the governor calls, it is something nice. They like to hear that. So I think they they have created something where they've got a handful of people who um, they're going to sort of tap. But again, make no mistake about it. They're politics here, by the way, as they should be. There are a lot of people out there. There's a lot of, I think, analysts out there right now who are saying, Oh, pick a business person who, you know, who is going to be completely separate from the politics. And that's just not the way I think. He's got an election, you know, less than two years away. He wants to pick somebody who's going to help him. And if, oh, by the way, they happen to be, you know, a good fit for the job, then that's wonderful. But this is all about the politics. And that's why you see, I think, Diosa and Matos as the kind of front runners right now. You um, put out the the difference between the two of them. Did Diosa? Did he miss an opportunity to 
put a little more meat under his application other than the, I mean, it, it almost looks like when people just put, I resign. Yeah. I mean, it, it was uh, glaring the difference between the two of them. Do you think, was that a missed PR? He has misplayed. The, the reason this is even a conversation, the reason why there's even a <laughs> chance, uh, you know, that he would not be selected as the, the lieutenant is that he has misplayed this hand almost the entire way. He, he oh. before uh, was even before she was, uh, I guess the rumors were out there about her becoming the Commerce Secretary, but she hadn't been named yet. And uh, former Mayor Diosa made a lot of phone calls to a lot of key stakeholders. In fact, I, he called Sabina Matos to ask for support uh, to, to oh. make, you know, to make the case to Dan McKee that he should be the lieutenant governor. That frustrated a lot of folks, I think, in the McKee world. Oh. I think it made them you know think that he was, you know, kind of, how is he going to act when he's the lieutenant governor? Is he going to sidestep us? Is he going to use his own connections to do things? They put a lot of thought in their head. Um, and then, you're right, I mean, he, he, you submit an application and you, you essentially just say, I'm interested, here's my resume. It, basically, you know me. Um, and, and I think the problem with that is, let's say he does get selected. Again, I would not be surprised at all if he does. If he gets selected, you have 60-some-odd people who are going to say, wait a minute, he didn't even show any thought in the one public thing that, that, he, that, that right. is out there. So he's, you're, you're going to face criticism. And by the way, this goes to, for, for all the somewhat upside, I would say, that, that you have for, for doing this public application process, the real downside, and there may be more downside than, than upside, is you're going to make enemies of 60 some people who don't get picked right everyone's going to have True. some sort of reason why they're going to say it was a fix if it was diosa they're going to say you know any number of reasons sabino matos wasn't isn't qualified or something like it's going to be a lot of that um so yeah i mean and by the way go look at matos's letter it was well thought out it was i thought yeah you know, humble in many ways it you know it wasn't yes uh i'd be I'm not <clears throat> campaigning for it um, and I think, yeah, I think it touched a lot of the folks in that McKee world. Uh, and so that's why you see those two kind of still as the seemingly leaders, so to speak. Dan McGowan, a couple other people on the list, Elizabeth Beretta Perrick, touch on, on her. Why there's a member of the media that feels that she's, she's pretty close to being maybe a finalist. Yeah, I, I've heard that, the, the name too, by the way, Democratic that's a significant person. You know, it means that you've mm. been on the ballot before, right? Um, now, it's it's not the same. It's not like campaigning in a, in a you know close heated race, but it means you know how to organize. You know how to uh, you know get some signatures. People, in theory, know your name uh, again to some degree more so than um, the the random people. I, I would throw her in the sort of upper echelon. Of, can, uh, of wow. candidates, so I think that's a a, a real chance. Um, you know, the more this gets, the more we start talking about three and four and five people. I actually think that then benefits James Diosa because I think the lieutenant governor looks at this and says, "All right, there's a bunch of people who, you know, I don't know that well, but they all look pretty good. But I'm going with the guy that I really know." Um, and so there's part of me that thinks that, you know, the more it happens, the more Diosa looks good. But, yeah, she, she would be uh, – Perrick would be one of the other people who I think uh, is certainly getting a close look. Dylan Conley, I mean, you got to be careful. Otherwise, it starts to look like you're at an auction where you just keep raising your paddle. Ran the bad race against Langevin. He's been rumored for mayor of Providence and just throws his – And, by the way, uh, you know, not that I would – be the best uh, person to, you know, if I were had to put together a cover letter, I'm sure I would screw it up too. But on his cover letter, you know, it's letterhead Conley for Congress, which doesn't look very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think the hard part of this is, is the Conley family has known, you know, Dan McKee from local politics for a really long. I think as we talked about during the congressional race over the summer, Dylan Conley's a smart kid. He's a, you know, he's a, oh, yeah, I say kid. He's a young man who is an attorney. He's been the chairman of the Providence Board of Licenses, which is a pretty high pressure um, role. But 
there's a little bit of you, you nailed it. It's, it becomes this, this situation of, you know, you, you raise your hand for everything. It means you're almost, you know, boy who cried wolf. It becomes a little bit, I hate to say it, like Chris Young day, right? Um, yes. Where you run for everything. Um, my sense is there is potentially a spot for him in the administration if he wants it. Um, mm. He is not going to get a deep look for lieutenant governor. Like, I'm pretty confident for that. What last question? Were you surprised Aaron Regenberg? I was. Uh, it's an interesting move. It means your kind of rival is is uh, you, you know you, you put it right out there. I'd like to be considered. Um, the problem with it is is that this isn't you know game theory, right? It's not. It's not what you would do in a game of The Sims. It's not team of rivals, right? And, and so while he has a deep progressive base i mean look if, if, if aaron regenberg were to actually support you for governor uh given all of the support that dan mckee likely has for moderates i mean dan mckee would sign up every day the problem is is that this would not be the partnership that dan mckee wants this would be right Absolutely it would be not. dan mckee the kind of moderate trying to govern through a crisis and it would be i think the, the you know yeah. aaron regenberg the activist being an activist Folks, we're going to take a quick break. A lot more. Dan McGowan of the Boston Globe right here on the John DePietro Show. Folks, remember, for all your tree service, well, you want to call Yankee Tree. Call them today, 401-439-6028. Yankee Tree Service, yankeetreeservice.com. What can they do? They do it all. Tree trimming. Experts based right in Lincoln. Tree removal. Since 2006, and also 24-7 emergency service available, call Yankee Tree Service today, 439-6028. 439-6028, whether it's tree removal, stump grinding, tree pruning, emergency service, bucket trucket service, and bobcat service. Since 2006, they've been performing tree removal service. On top of that, nothing stumps. Yankee Tree Service, they provide stump grinding. Enjoy your landscape without the eyesore. As far as pruning, well, let them get up there. Oftentimes a tree can be pruned instead of cutting it down. At Yankee Tree Service, their licensed arbiters help you decide what's best, the treatment plan for your tree. And maybe it's an emergency service. Did something come down? Call them today, 439-6028, 439-6028. If they have to, they get right up there in the bucket. Yankee Tree Service, since 2006, tree trimming experts. Give them a call, 439-6028, or online at yankeetreeservice.com. WNRI Winsocket, W236CW, W260DC. WNRI. 